this meeting that's going on right now, I mean, there's no, there's lots of meetings that happen in Houston in a given month, but I can't imagine a more spiritual meeting or a more profound meeting or a meeting that Jesus smiles at more than a meeting like this, where, um, where men and women, leaders of his church are, are kind of dropping the walls and, um, and saying, you know, what is it that we might be able to do together that if we didn't care who got the credit, how, how might Jesus get glory? And um, so Chad and all the leadership who, who has dreamed this dream and built this organization, um, I have a weird ear and these things never stay on. But uh, just way to go. Those of you who it's your first or second time, make it your third, your fourth, and fifth. And make this a priority. And then make it more than a meeting that, uh, that, that happens where we talk about stuff. But as, as uh, we already heard the challenge, I mean, there's an incredible opportunity for the Christ. You know, I'm, I'm from a Southern Baptist background. We use the word autonomy a lot. You guys use that word, autonomy in the local church? Yeah, we think that's a biblical word. It ain't. <laughs> you won't find autonomy of the local church in Scripture. You'll find its opposite. You'll find interdependence. That's a biblical word. That's a biblical concept. And a group like this living interdependently and, and kind of open-handed and allowing King Jesus to direct direct you is an incredible. In fact, I'll just go so far as to say that when your church becomes your goal, it is an idolatrous, powerless thing. But when the kingdom of God is your goal that you're shooting for, and your church, the people, the dollars, the facilities, everything you have, you don't own them, you, you steward them, and, and you hold them with an open hand, then you could just flush the last 40 years of what you learned in the church growth school and, uh, and say, King Jesus, what is it that we're supposed to do? And, and okay, we're supposed to go to this area here and help. And so i uh, just just so thrilled to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Honored to be here. Uh, I, I am a part of, Ed Stetzer and I lead something called the Send Institute, which you may or may not be familiar with. Very new, uh, about three years old, but apparently there was a vacuum in this space and it has just blown up quickly. We have over 70 denominations and networks that are involved in this, where it's a church planting think tank where we're helping denominations think through the realities of what it takes to plant churches in, in the current environment that we have in North America. And so that's, that's, a, that's a, fun, a fun kind of experience we get to do. But today, I want to talk about an effective missiology for a secular culture. You were in Houston, and it's not the same Houston it was in 19, 1990, is it? It's a different Houston. A very multicultural, pluralistic um, environment. I, I live in Toronto. I have the same vibe. It's been there for a long time. And... Um, the city that I, I live in, in year 2000, it crossed over to over half of the city, the third largest city in North America, and over half of it was born outside of Canada. And so we're, we're used to multi-ethnic, multiculturalism become something. But also, 
it also informs uh, that things are, are going to change. And so when you think of the word secular, um, what does secular mean? This is, anybody want to share? What, what, is, what does secular mean? New? Okay. Worldly? Yeah, worldly. It, it basically, I mean, it just, it's the opposite of sacred, isn't it? And, um, and, and so the idea of, of secular became something that uh, after the Renaissance, there was, it becomes a more and more important idea and, uh, and the displacement of that. It, it, it was a growing idea. Um, but, it, you know, it's kind of an odd idea, too. Like you might have a, a person in your church who loves Jesus more than anybody else in your church. Uh, and uh, but their job is, you know, they're an accountant at Ernst and Young, and uh, and uh, and what what is their job? It's a secular job, and uh, and yet their life isn't a secular life, and uh, and so it becomes a troublesome term. Then we have a second term that we use a lot, and it's called secularism, right? So what is secularism? When you put an ism on the end of something, what is it? It's a belief system, right? It's a, it's a, a system of values. And so somewhere in the 60s, probably, and then moving forward, secularism began to be something that uh, began to pick up more and more speed. And the ideas of secularism is that it was going to rid the world of the sacred, it was going to be uh, build a neutrality, a place of neutrality in society where where the sacred would not have a foothold. And so, so we went from secular to secularism, and uh, and and that that kept going for a while. But we're not in that place. You're not in that place in Houston right now. There's a third term that describes the reality of what you're in, and that is secularity. And um, and secularity is the understanding that secularism is an ism, just like every other ism. They're all belief systems. They all sing for their supper. And they all have to somehow compete in a free market for people to uh, respond to their ideas. And so today, uh, in the 1980s, secularism was going to win the day. It never did win the day. Lots of reasons for it. There was immigration. People brought in, uh, brought in uh, ideas and worldviews from all over the world that began to compete. There was the fact that Christianity just would not dry up and blow away. There was other major world religions that came and came a part of North America. And so now secularism is just one more ism in, in North America, which is an important thing, I think, to be able to... Uh, Hold that we understand there's just one option among any. And I think what I'd like to share to begin with is how secularity is bringing clarity to the gospel and how secularity is bringing an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to uh, be able to have a voice that maybe it, it hadn't in the past. And so we're going to look at six different things. And if you're note takers, take notes. And if not, um, I'm sure you can get this PowerPoint from somebody. But, uh, 
but the first idea is this idea of religious pluralism. Secularity brought the idea of religious pluralism to the, to the forefront. And um, pluralism is, we all know, it's just this free market economy of thought. Everybody has their own ideas and they're all equally valid and they compete in this, in this free market. And, um, and so, for, for instance, so some of the things that might happen in the future is, and I'll, a lot of people are afraid of this, and I'm not sure it's bad or it's not sure it's good, it's going to change, but there's going to be, if I'm, a, if I'm at all, if, you, if you're reading the tea leaves, if I'm reading the tea leaves, it doesn't take a prophet or the son of a prophet to be able to see how the world is going to change after this election in the USA or the next election, whatever happens. But uh, because of uh, uh, the evangelical sort of giving in to a political idea, it is seen as an enemy by, by the other idea. And, um, and when, when, when the tide turns and whoever is in the, in the power next, I think the things that we were hanging on to the most are, I think, the, uh, if you live by the sword, Jesus says, what happens? And we have chosen to live by the sword. We have chosen to say that, that we're going to influence the world and we're going to push Christianity as an ism instead of Christ as who, what Christ does in our lives and, our, and changes. There's going, to be, there's going to be something a little bit different that happens. And, uh, and because of the fact that's how we have chosen to fight the battle, when, when we lose the next battle... Uh, probably a lot of the rights that you've given or gained um, are, are not going to be there, I would think. One of them happened in Canada, so I imagine it'll happen here, is charitable giving, charitable rights. Uh, I mean, for, for your, your giving to a, a church and you get an automatic tax deduction for that. Um, what we had to do in Canada, what, what happened is, you know what we had to do? We had to prove that we were charitable as a church. You know what that means? The definition of a charity is you don't exist for your membership. You exist for the community. So the Canadian government made every church prove that they were missional <laughs> in order to be able to give a tax receipt. Guess how many churches could pass that test? And so when you're just thinking about, when you're, when you're living in a pluralistic society, where Christianity has to compete with secularism, has to compete with every other ism, there, 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 there is some changes there. There's a second thing that has happened, which is not a bad thing, but it's a scary thing for many, and that is this rise of the nuns. You know what I'm talking about? Not N-U-N, yeah, but the rise of, it's not a bunch of, you know, a horror movie and a bunch of people with hobbits kind of getting out of, but uh, habits, sorry, hobbits. Uh, that's a different movie. And... Um, <laughs> So, so there's been a, a change where, where all of a sudden people are declaring what they've always been. There, we've had how many, in, in, you know, Christmas and Easter Christians going for, you know, for whatever reason that, that, you know, I'm Baptist, I'm Pentecostal, I'm Lutheran, I'm whatever. But they were really nothing. They didn't help your church. They didn't help the cause. In fact, them wearing the brand was probably more distraction and destruction than anything else. But now there's a sense where everybody is claiming their nunness. And, uh, and the fact that that squishy middle is now gone, by and large, 
Maybe less so in, in more of the more Bible belt that you're in. But if you're in places where there is no Christian memory, it is gone like that. And, um, and when that squishy middle is gone and everybody is owning what, they're, what they are, it actually creates an environment for the gospel to run. Instead of a person nodding their head and saying they believe all the things that they say they believe, but they don't. Now they're challenging you. And when they challenge you, guess what happens? You have a conversation and you have, have a place for the gospel to intersect in their lives. And so this rise of the nuns is not something I think you need to be worried about. I think it's an opportunity. And then there's a third factor that secularity is helping us. And that is it's a de-Eurocentrism of, of North America, of America. Used to be, and I was in the last group, we had a great time. And sometimes I, I, when I get with a bunch of pastors, I ask this question. And I said, where do we get our idea of church? And, um, and most pastors or leaders, you know, it's such an easy question, right? It's like a layup, you know, we get from the Bible. And, um, and so then I take the next step and say, okay, think of everything you did last year, I mean, last week as a church, and make the direct connections between that and Scripture. And there's very few hard lines between the two. Because we didn't get our idea of church from the Bible. We got our idea of church from Europe. And uh, they reformed it. And they changed up for some things. But they reformed a church that was in the middle of Christendom, in the midst of a culture of Christianity, of a veneer of Christianity, and where church was by, by and large an event. And then we brought that to North America. And we, we Americanized it. And we changed it. But we didn't get our idea of church from the Bible. We got our idea of church from Europe. And you want to see the future of that church, go to Europe and look at it. I love what I heard already. God is bringing the nations to Houston to be a... Uh, uh, to be reached for sure by the gospel, but they're bringing the people that are, have the ability to reach us with the gospel. And, uh, and I, I, last week, I got to be in Thessaloniki, Greece, with uh, 86 nations of church planting teams from around the world. Many of them, many of them are, are starting churches in places where you know, it's illegal to proselytize. And I'm, I'm getting to share and be with, with these groups of people and, um, and realizing, listening to stories and realizing what's going on there, that the future of Christianity is not in North America, or at least what, how we think of Christianity. The future of Christianity in North America is what I'm seeing in Southeast Asia, what I'm seeing in China, what I'm seeing, you know, what you see all over the place, where, where they, I have a, a friend who's a Russian missionary, Russian missionary to Canada, interesting, and, um, and he said, Jeff, you know what? If we don't do, I can't do accents. <laughs> Every, everyone sounds the same. If we don't do Acts 1-8, he goes, God will do Acts 8-1. There was a great persecution arose. We'll get to that. So there is this deal Eurocentrizing of North America and um, the church, that I, the last church that I planted in Toronto. You know, um, you know who my my sending church was. 
It was a uh, missionary from Venezuela to Toronto who started Iglesia Batel, Batista. And, uh, and that was my, my sponsoring church. And people think that's so weird. And I got to think, that is so awesome. And, uh, and I think we'll see more and more and more and more of that. That uh, God is bringing all kinds of people to, to, to reach where we are. Then there's a fourth factor. And, um, and when I look at the age of this group that I'm speaking with, you will resonate with this because you're living it. And that is there is an increasing disassociation with politics. And, um, and the, younger, the younger the age group that is there, the more disassociation there is with that. The, the older, the people of my age and, and older seem to somehow still hang on to think that somehow the political answer is going to be the answer. And, uh, and the generation that's here is saying, nah, nah, the gospel's going to be the only answer. And, uh, and somehow there has to be this sort, of, this sort of separation and this non-syncretism between patriotism and the American dream and Jesus Christ. And, and they have to be somehow stripped apart. And so that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ can run in any kind of way. And so evangelicals as uh, a voting block um, is, is a soon-to-be-disregarded thing. I think another 10 years, is, it's going to be a, hist- a thing in history. And, uh, and secularity is something that is helping it. And then the last, or the fifth idea of how secularity is helping, and we'll get a little bit practical in a bit, but just to get a construct, is that... Um, it's uncovering a fragile moral substructure that's in resident in the cities, in the communities that you're living. We spent uh, an hour and a half talking about that just a little bit ago. But there's, there's an idea out there that uh, when people, when the average secularized uh, American thinks of church, they have a picture of what it is, and they're not at all attracted to it. They, they think it's immature in many ways. They think it's self-serving. And, um, and, and they're not sort of, sort of naturally moving towards that. And yet there's something going on in their spirit. There's something that's going on inside them. And, uh, and they they're haven't ruled out the spiritual at all. In fact, they're becoming more and more spiritual and uh, in this environment of secularity. Here's an example. I, I went and I was planting a church, and I've learned, when you do this enough, you just keep learning, right? And, uh, and I've learned now when I plant churches, I don't let in Christians. <laughs> and um, seriously, I don't. And uh, start with a, a couple, two or three Christian families, and then shut the door, ask for no more, praise God, and we just go for lost people at that point. And... Um, and it's so cool, it's so good. And uh, because they know lost people, and, and you build a church that looks, you build, that, that looks like the community and thinks like the community, and the gospel just runs quickly. And um, instead of the ones and the ones and the ones, it's like families and groups and stuff start coming. And, um, and so we said, okay, we're not going to let any Christians in, but we need to somehow, how do we engage? So we spent about eight or nine months getting a whole bunch of people to trust us a little bit. Just trust us a little bit. Then we rented a room a lot like this, found round tables, 
and, uh, and we were going to have a meal, and we, our goal was to have 50 secular lost adults in the room to give us advice. That was the goal. And uh, so our four families uh, cooked lasagnas, and, uh, and, our, and, we, and we invited people to this, and we, we rented a community center, and we had tables set up for 50. Optimist. Well, we had 60. Everybody we invited came. And, um, and uh, we, they didn't know each other. They kind of knew our four families, and uh, a few of them had a few connections, but it, mostly not. And I said, all right, now, guys, um, I have one question for you, and I want you to talk it around your tables. And then elect a captain. We've got a whiteboard here, and we're going to write down your answers. We're really going to learn from you. And I said, um, now, again, this is Canada. Two things you don't ever talk about publicly, and that's religion or politics. Okay? I said, describe your ideal spiritual community. What would happen? What wouldn't happen? What would turn you on? What would put you off? What would excite you? What would just nauseate you? Just, just describe your ideal spiritual community. Of course, these aren't de church people. These are many generations now in a very secular society that have not had any... Their, their total experience with church is media. And uh, they knew what I was. I was coming to start a church. They understood that, that weren't hiding that. They knew that. And so it was an awkward silence in this room. And, uh, and then an extrovert over there started talking. And then an extrovert over here in this table started talking. And then there was a rumble happening, a great discussion happening across this room. And I let it run for about 20 minutes tops. And I said, all right, thanks so much, guys. Now, captains kind of share. And we started writing down the things that they said. And then we correlated them. And uh, in, while they were there to find the things that were in common, here were the top three. You might want to write this down because we've done this a number of times. We get the same answers each time. Number one, God would be important every day, not just one day. And so their thought was that Christianity was a sort of superficial, somewhat maybe hypocritical idea that religious people did on a, on a weekend. They didn't want to be part of that. They were looking for something holistic. Number two, it would be a spiritual community that looked after the mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, holistic needs of everybody in that spiritual community. It wasn't just about religion, it was about life. And that's what their heart's desire was. Interesting. Number three, it would be a spiritual community that took responsibility for the welfare of the greater community that surrounded them. First time we did this, I was gobstruck. I had my finger in Acts chapter 2, and I was planning on reading the end of those verses to them. And I did. I read them slowly. I said, do you guys see what's happening here? I said, the thing that's deep within your heart that you want to be a part of the, is what the Bible says is what the church of Jesus Christ is. It's what God wants to be a part of. It's the thing I want to be a part of. And I want to be a part of this stuff that we're looking about and you're talking about. And if you want to be this stuff that we're looking about at and you're talking about, let's do this together. And, um, and over the course of 12 months, we baptized 52 of that. And we continued on. And, and that, 
that became something where, where we just learn to give ourselves away and, uh, and think a little bit differently than, than churches think. So uh, what are we seeing now? I'm watching that same thing happen in many places. In fact, in fact um, Quebec is, if you, look at, if you think about what is the hardest place in North America to plant a church, I would tell you without hesitating, Quebec. Eight million people, seven to eight million are Quebecois. They came from Normandy, France in the 1600s, came to North America, fought a war with the English, um, lost, and then became this isolated island of English surrounded, I mean, France surrounded by English, and sort of closed in on themselves as a culture, and um, not wanting anything to do with anything that sounds outside of their culture. And so vestiges of Catholicism, but they've turned their back on that. Every curse word they have is a word associated with religion. And um, very, very difficult place to reach. If you ask me, of all the cities that I'm watching in North America, where we see God moving the most, you know where it is? Quebec, Montreal. We're watching churches baptize a hundred at a time. And, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a... a group of people between 18 and 30 that are, are absolutely saying, you know, I want, I'm seeing death and they're desperate everywhere. They're, they're, they've been living in secularism for such a long time and they're, now they're looking for some truth. And, uh, and so there is this clarifying idea, this, this moral substructure. And then, um, and I'll just sort of boot through this in a hurry, but I think this is important. There's going to be a clarifying opposition, I promise, more so than you you're maybe are wanting. And, um, and a lot of us are going to resist that opposition, and we'd want, want the way things are. I have some friends that are, are involved in a church planning movement in Cuba, and, uh, and when Fidel Castro died, and, uh, and looks like maybe there might be some new kinds of freedom in Cuba... I asked him, I said, do you, want to, do you want religious freedom in Cuba? And you know what he said? No. I don't want anything like that. I want the conditions exactly like they are right now because we are seeing a movement of God across Cuba like, like there are very few places. And in fact, they're, they're so backed up to go to seminary, now you have to actually plant a church as part of your thing before you can go to seminary. <laughs> We got to bribe our seminary students to go and plant a church. So, just briefly, just from my observation of how this could help us, this this opposition that is coming. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but I'd be very surprised if if, if things don't get harder for Christianity in America in the future. Harder and easier. And let me give you the bright side of it. Number one is it reminds us what matters. Because right now, the Church of Jesus Christ is fascinated with trivial pursuit. We, we do all the stuff, so much of the stuff is just sort of fluff and extraneous. And uh, if I go to a group like this, and I won't do it here, but often I do this question, I ask how many people in this room could stand up or put up their hand and say, somebody discipled me. There'd be a group of 100 people, there might be three or four that would put up their hand and say, yeah, 
There's somebody who walked with me or a group of people discipled me to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Most of us, that's not the church's job. We have worship services to run. We've got all kinds of things. And the very basic thing that Jesus told the church to do, we, we just ignore. And, um, and, and discipleship really isn't even a thing. I mean, Jesus didn't tell us to go and, you know, disciple people. He said, go and what? Make disciples. And, uh, and so, so there is a, a clarifying thing that reminds us what matters. I think I already spoke to this, but it also weeds out the frauds. You're not going to, you're not going to stand up and pay a price to follow Jesus Christ. If, there's, you know, if putting a fish on your bumper doesn't help you with business, you're not going to do it. And, um, and so, so the, the nuns that are, are part of that are no longer gone. It also raises up prophetic voices. And there's, there's a sense where, where there's going to be people in this room that are actually trying to figure out the future. And the ideas that kind of brought us to the place where we're actually in a little bit of trouble aren't going to be the voices that help us to the future. And the voices that help us to the future are going to be the ones that are on the margins right now and who are trying to figure their way out into that. And so it, it that sort of takes us to the next thing, is that it actually physically moves the church to the margins. Um, right now, <laughs> for, for I, I'm not going to be unkind, but if I were to talk to church planters in this room and say, give me your strategy, what I would hear nine times out of ten is a strategy towards self-sustainability. That's like the thing, that's the goal, self-sustainability. And I wonder if that was the strategy or that should be the strategy for movement. That, uh, that we have a picture of a, a professional job where I have a, a paycheck and, and maybe another person who has a paycheck and we have the people that can pay for it all. I wonder if movement looks a little different than that. I wonder if it has in the past, and I wonder if it will in the future. And, uh, and so it's, the opposition is going is to clarify a lot of things for us, and it's going to move people to the margins, like you see around the world where the gospel is taking off, and you see even who Jesus spent his time and his earthly ministry with. It wasn't the people necessarily that could pay the bills. It was, it was the people on the margins, that, uh, that, he was, that he began to work with that we oftentimes want to ignore. And, uh, and we miss, I think, a, a great blessing of what God wants to do. Opposition enhances the need for genuine discipleship. Church planter, if I could plead one thing for you, it would be don't sleep <laughs> um, until, don't be satisfied, don't, don't have a restful spirit in your life until you can sort of look at one way and say, I know how we're going to engage the harvest. I know how we're going to do it. We're not going to go for our fair share, market share of the easily uh, evangelistically or evangelically disposed, the people who are, are, are ready and willing to come to our church. I need to somehow get my fair share of those. But I'm actually looking at the harvest, which is wasting all around me. And, um, and saying, how do I engage that harvest with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then develop a church where 
everything that we're doing, it's not flashy, and I don't have all the programs, and I don't have something for the youth, and I don't necessarily have this, I don't necessarily have that, but I've got a way that I can help that person who goes from spiritually curious to a, a disciple of Jesus Christ to a multiplying church planning team member. And, uh, and I have, the vision that, you, that I saw up here was amazing of what, of what Houston Church Planning Network is all about. I heard church planning movements in that and um, multiplication in that. And, uh, and if you ask me, do I think North America will see a church planning movement? I'd say no. I really don't. I don't think we have the conditions, the ability here to see a church planning movement happen with diversity, with uh, everything that we have here. I can't find a, a one in the world happening or has happened in the midst of all this kind of cultural diversity. But do I think there can be numerous church, mini church planning movements that overlap one another and try to figure out how to reach every man, woman, boy, and girl so they get to see, hear, and taste, and smell the good news of Jesus Christ? What you guys are doing here is, is setting it up for that. And um, so, so this, this, this idea is exactly, I think, where you want to be. So you, 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 you look at the harvest, you're seeing it waste away, no one going after it. Most churches, their whole plan uh, is how do I get those who will easily come to our church through some kind of an invitation. And you're saying, no, we're going after the harvest. We're taking the harvest. We're discipling them. And then we see, and we had to invent a word for this. Um, because it wasn't one in our culture. It wasn't one in our, we're going, okay, we have bivocational, right? By kind of means divide, bisect, bifurcate means two. And, um, and in our work, I just watched that as we fund a church planner over four or five years, over 50% of them at the end end up needing a second job and feeling like a failure because they weren't self-sufficient. Over half of them weren't self-sufficient at the end of funding. What if we thought differently? Co-vocation. Co is Latin, co means with co-author, co-pilot, two, two things joined together for a synergistic uh, idea. And uh, what if churches began to think like they were in the New Testament, that this really wasn't a career path, this was just the way of a disciple. That, uh, that, that we go and we come to Christ and we're discipled, and then we just sort of multiply, and hey, I, I'm now leading this part, and I've got a full-time job doing this, but I'm leading this, and I have a co-vocation, and I don't ever want to get out of my vocation because God, there is no sacred and secular. This thing that God led me to when I was a young man to go and or to be a part of, or a young woman, this, this thing that I'm doing in the hospital is my calling, and I, I'm committed to that, but I also know that God has called that to be the parish for me to invest in ministry. And, uh, and I go and I live in that kind of way. I'm actually doing that right now myself. I'm a co-vocational pastor and I have a team no one, no one is paid and we're doing it so with authority I can say to the people, follow me like I follow Christ. I'm going to be in Houston this week and I'm going to be somewhere else, but, uh, but my job is, is this thing, but this, uh, this life that we're, we're doing together here is something altogether different, and it all fits together. And so, I don't remember where that was. Oh, so it enhances the need for genuine discipleship. 
two quickies, and I, I, I'm speaking to a warm audience on these. Uh, opposition unites believers. It does. It's hard. Like I, I, I'm, I'm in Toronto, where you know believers are few and far between. When you find one, you hug them. And then I, I lived in Atlanta for four years. Just moved back from, from there. And, uh, and he, there we argued about how this person's not quite right. This one's a little different. This guy's theology, he's all screwed up. And uh, this, did you hear what that guy said? Did you hear? And, and it was those were the conversations that were going amongst believers all the time. And uh, man, put some heat on you. And all of a sudden you realize that, yeah, okay, we're, we're not 100% together, but we are 90% together. And, uh, and I love you, brother. I love you, sister. And, uh, and let's join hands and do this together. And it, there's a sense where opposition has a unifying factor because we now are around who? Jesus Christ. And that makes a difference. And then the last that, I, that I've seen, and you probably see, is opposition increases, not decreases believers. The numbers don't go down when opposition happens. Numbers go up when opposition happens. The real numbers. Not the numbers of Christendom, but the numbers of Jesus' people go up and uh, has that clarifying effect. So, what do we got to do to get there? Here's where I'm going to grab a marker. We got to change some stuff. And... Um, and it's not small stuff. It isn't, you know, move the offering from the middle to the end of the service. <laughs> but we've got to update our theology of missions because we've, we've started wrong from the first place. Let me just say, remember how I said we get our idea of church not from the Bible but from Europe? What that has done to us in our, our concept of church is, is the idea of church was in the middle of a Christian or a Christianized place when, it, when, when the Reformation was going on. They were, they were arguing about ideas within Christianity. It wasn't what was going on in the first century when the church was born, where, where the church of Jesus Christ was this totally different thing than the culture. And where we are today is far more like the first century than the Reformation. And, uh, and so we've got to think a little more Acts-like, a little more first century-like as we begin to move. And so we have to update our theology of missions. Now, one of the issues I think that we have, if you can't solve a problem with a Venn chart, you're just not trying, you know? And um, <laughs> so we got three big ecclesiology, missiology, Christology. But three big ideas. And, um, and, and as I go to, oftentimes, and talk, a pastor or church planter, um, we, we've been trained, we've been bathed in a culture that starts with ecclesiology. And so we start with, and uh, so a church planter is going to start with a, a uh, kind of a, a style of church that he wants to get to. 
And, uh, and so it's going to be, you know, it's going to be tractional, it's going to be missional, it's going to be, we have this idea that, that we have, that we have this idea. And, uh, and so we take a lot of what Jesus says and we dump it right from the very beginning. Because we have to start with, with a, you know, Jesus, and we talked the last session, you guys have read this, not new. He mentions the word church two times in the Gospels. And he mentions the kingdom of God 86 times. And, uh, and so that, that weight, that distribution should inform us of something. But we start, we start here and we go, all right. So we get our idea of church. And then, then we go to Christology. And, uh, and we have to kind of take a lot of what Jesus says and kind of dismiss it. We, have, we need a much smaller Jesus to fit the, the idea of church that we have. Uh, one of the examples I just kind of made fun of last, last week, but the church growth, uh, last night, this morning, whenever it was, church growth people says, um, save yourself. That's what we were taught. This, this was the motion. Gather, gather, keep, gather, keep, gather, keep, 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 keep. Stack them up. Build another building. Build a bigger building. Gather, keep. Oh, okay. Put some over there and make sure you're in charge of it. Gather, keep, gather, keep. That's what we've learned for 40 years. And um, all the while, Jesus is saying, if you save yourself, what happens? But if you lose yourself for my sake in the gospel, what happens? It's just, it's just a whole different Jesus you're talking about. And, um, and so we go here and, and we have our idea that we have. And then uh, we have a kind of a smaller Jesus, and then we go to the community, and we begin to engage. But we really got nothing that nobody wants. It's like, hmm, not interested, sorry. But what if we thought of this a little bit differently? What if we started here? Started with Jesus. Starting with a great big Christology. Of, uh, of who this Jesus is. And remember I said one of the things we learned about secular people is they wanted more than a Sunday morning Jesus. What if we said we're not offering a Sunday morning Jesus? <laughs> that, that we really do think community is important. We really do think that the integration of what we see in Scripture is important. I, I share a bit of a story of this movement that's going on in Vietnam, and the most um, person, one of the, the guys that's in charge of this movement, who spent most of his life in prison, defending his orthodoxy to a friend of mine who was a uh, uh, pastor from Nashville and uh, who was kind of just badgering him, badgering, badgering about how he keeps orthodoxy in all these cells that they have around there, and he finally just sort of breaks down and says, "This is what we do." We read a Bible verse, and we don't read the next Bible verse till we do the last Bible verse. This is, this is what we're talking about. We're, we're, we're not talking about a mindset of how we fill, more, fill our heads with more, but it's an obedience-based. And so we have a Christology, and then we go into the community, and we have missiology. And so here, what we're talking about is kingdom thinking. Here, we're talking about missional engagement. Finally, we go to biblical community, and that whole process is disciple-making. 
starting with kingdom thinking, missional, missional engagement. Here is what King Jesus asked us to do. Here's the community he's asked us to do it in. How do we best? Where's the social fault line? What is the thing that God has asked us to address? And then how do we form biblical community that makes sense in this context and we make disciples? And we don't have to have the, the old argument about what is our style or what is our model. We allow God to do what he wants to do in the midst of that. And so we update our theology of mission. And then... We update our model of mission. Um, lots of ways to rethink this. But if I were to go to a church planter and say, tell me how you're going to staff this thing, you know, whether it's volunteers or paid or whatever, how are you going to staff it? More times than not, I'm going to hear this. Well, this, so-and-so is going to lead music. So-and-so is going to lead Small groups, so-and-so is going to lead children, so-and-so is going to lead, you know. And we have, we have this idea. And, uh, and most of what we talk about, or how we're going to staff, is how we're going to do Sunday morning, right? We staff for that Sunday morning idea. I had a guy in 2006 share an idea with me that, uh, that I'm actually still living out. And, uh, and you've heard it, and it's not going to be new, but let me just give you as an idea that Jesus himself, when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, God has given some to be apostles, evangelists, shepherds, or apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. And, uh, and you just make a, a, a little idea here, and you go, okay, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. One typology, you don't have to go with this one. Apostle, was Jesus an apostle? Let's just think about Jesus. Was he an apostle? As the Father sent me, so I send you. So Jesus was an apostle. Was he a prophet? Yeah, you, you've, you've heard it say, but let me tell you, I say to you. I mean, he was prophetic. Was he an evangelist? Yeah, he was pretty much an evangelist. How about, was he a shepherd? Good shepherd, good shepherd. Was he a teacher? Huh. So, so, so the person of Christ is this, right? So should the body of Christ look like this? Let's think about why we might want to. So normally, here's how it works. The apostle role is probably a lot of people in this room fit that, S several of you anyway, that you, you, you just cannot not see mission. You just see mission all the time. You just see, I got to get the gospel here. I got to go here. You can't sleep at night. It's just like that in front of you all the time. And it's mission, 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 mission. That definitely is how God has wired me up. I just can't, I get so frustrated by, by people who are not thinking mission. And, uh, and I'm so unbalanced on that and that. So that, that's, that's me. But when a guy like me plants a church, I'm thinking, mission, 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 and it works good for a year or two, and then the sheep start going, me, me, me. And the only answer I got for them is, come on and limp faster. We got more mission over here. Let's, let, let's keep moving. And, uh, and, so, and so the prophet, their, their role, if there's one in that group, is to sort of keep... keep um, 
the spiritual temperature in that church right. Make sure everything that we're doing is in line with God's word. Make sure everything that we're doing is in line with God has asked us to do as his people. The evangelist, he's going and kind of, kind of recruiting for the whole thing. The shepherd is caring for, the teacher teaches some hyphenate. And so all of those together, you know, you see, man, there's a punch. But when, when there's not that and churches are planted by, by guys like me and we don't value the other ideas, um, this guy, when he goes, says, I'm done with you. Uh, I mean, God's called me to another place. Um, um, if there was a prophet... There's no compelling vision anymore, and so he's silenced. And so then the church is often led by evangelists, but there's no prophet to keep him honest. So he brings in the, you know, the guys that bend things and break things and stuff. And we do all, all kinds of weird things to get people to raise their hand. And, um, and, then, and then the shepherd is there, and the teachers are there to disciple a mostly unregenerate congregation. And, and we have sort of what we have in our soup in evangelicalism right now, something similar to that. Think about this a little bit differently. So, let's just say... The average church in your denomination, whatever it is, I'll use mine, but you just think yours. The average church. Um, how high is the apostolic IQ from one to ten? Is it high, low, medium? So I'm, I'm of the SBC world, and I'm going to say it's very low. Very low. How high would be the prophetic idea. And I'm, again, I'm, I'm not talking charismatic stuff here. I really am talking, what does God's word say and how is it differentiating with what the, our culture is saying? Because I'm watching a lot of what we do as, as a denomination that just sort of locks in with culture. And um, so how, how, how prophetic is the, uh, the idea? I'd say for mine, pretty low. Evangelistic. Now again, I'm not talking about believes in evangelism, and I'm not talking about preaches evangelistic sermons to Christians. I'm, I'm talking about regularly seeing lost people in the harvest coming to faith. How, how, how normal is that in your average church, in your average denomination? I'm going to say, for us, it's low again. Shepherding, caring for the people within the congregation. That's, that's for us, is a better one. We're much better at shepherding. I, I, would, I, would, I mean, we, because community is still hard in a, when, when, when church is an event, it's hard to, hard to do good shepherding, but it's still more of a priority than teaching. Well, that's the only thing we do. <laughs> I mean, we... We send people to seminary and they're useless except they can learn how to teach. And uh, that's wrong. I didn't say that. That's wrong. I, I, I'm, 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 but, but you look at this. 
If this is who Jesus is, this, and if this who the body of Christ might, should be, maybe our staffing and our priorities should, maybe we have to call them a youth director still, but we figure out how they, they figure out into this role. And there's an interdependence. If there's not that interdependence, you get weirdos like me that says, you know, mission, 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 mission. You need the rest of the perspectives of the body of Christ in order this thing to be fully functioning and healthy. But what happens if you just start moving a few of those around? You start valuing some of these. You begin to see a you know, way bigger impact in a community. And um, so maybe rethink your model of mission, especially if you have the opportunity to plant and start over. Because the day is fast approaching um, even the suburbs of Houston where, where the uh, low-hanging fruit that, you know, you can shake a tree and get some evangelicals to come and be a part of something new, those days are drying up too. And, um, and pretty soon, if a church is going to be a church at all, it's just going to have to win people and disciple them. And maybe let's just go ahead and start that way. And so we're rethinking our model of mission. We're updating our, our strategies of mission, third. Um, I won't say a lot about this, because, but much of our, our strategies for mission, as, as if, you just, just looked, if you just looked at a macro view at, at the lay of the land, how, it's, it's ecclesiastical husbandry. It's really what we're doing. We're, we're, we're somehow trying to create outposts of Christianity that, that sort of take our denomination, have our stamp, our brand on it. And, um, and they're very much, they're not mission-centered at all. In fact, I wrote an article, I read an article every, every uh, Monday on Christianity Today, and one that was yesterday was, um, does Jesus' mission have a church? And that was a question I was just asking, because a lot of times, you know, we're asking the question, does, you know, so just thinking through, if Jesus' church, uh, mission had a church, what would be the implications be to the church that exists right now? How would we think differently? And, uh, and so it has so radical ideas. So we're not talking about ecclesiastical husbands. We're talking about how do I infiltrate domains? I mean, when you're, when you're looking at wherever, when I was with those guys from those different countries, that's what they were having to do. They were infiltrating domains of society. They were, they were um, didn't know the word co-vocational, it, but they, they were doing that. They just instinctively did that. Their people, they, they weren't setting up great dreams for how they were going to plant churches and make them sustainable by giving. That wasn't, that wasn't the highest threshold. They were thinking about how do we get into this apartment building and how do we get the gospel over here? And if you went and, uh, and just drew... You got a map. I draw circles. I don't know why I did erase three of them. I keep drawing the same thing. And, uh, but you, you have a map of your city. And you say, okay, here, here I'm in Humble. And, uh, and our, our church is right here in Humble. And then you kind of sort of work your way out. You go, um, under God, 
how big, how do I want to take spiritual responsibility? How, what's the place? And, uh, and you say, all right, I want to take two miles, whatever the thing is. And so that the, the vision that, that uh, you have is worked out. Every man, woman, boy, and girl. And you begin to see in that circle is all kinds of people that would not come to this church. And so how does the gospel get to them? And you take spiritual responsibility for them under God, saying the gospel is going to get to that person. I'm going to figure out how. And then lastly, and I'll just end here because it's a highlight for me to watch it happen here, and that is collaborating for mission. Uh, until, until that hits the ground, I don't see movement. But, you know, there's something that happens when, when Jesus becomes the rallying cry for a city. And, uh, and it's not a branding issue. It's nothing. It's, it's the kingdom of God. How does that happen? And you begin to see this. This is good news, guys. And this isn't common. I can tell you, this is not happening in every city in North America. It's a rarity, what's going on here. And, uh, and take it as a blessing. And then I'd, my encouragement for you would be... Keep finding more gears. You've got a baseline now. Keep finding more gears. How do we collaborate? How, how do we make it a cultural expectation that when I plant, a, when we plant a church in this neighborhood, that uh, yeah, we're going to be connected to that to that church that we plant, but we're going to connect that church planner and make sure that he is organically connected with the other ones that are going on there. And uh, you know, one of the things I got to do is I went to our trustees at, at the North American Mission Board for the idea of the SEND Institute. And, uh, and I gave eight paradigm shifts that I've had in my thinking and uh, that have sort of brought me to the leadership that I sort of put into the SEND network. And, um, and, I, and I gave them. I said, boom, 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 boom. These were all, these were all big things, and, uh, and they're now integrated into the thinking of what we're doing. Then I went and gave the source of them, each one of them. I said, do you know what's in common with those? I said, not one of them are from the SBC. All of this I got from other places. And, uh, and so if we are going to sort of become insular and drink our own bathwater from here on out, you know, it's not a healthy future for us. But... If we're willing to sort of engage and collaborate with other groups and denominations in North America, I think it could be a healthy future because we're going to learn stuff that we're going to need to learn for our future that other people are figuring out. And, uh, and they voted unanimously to fund something called the SEND Institute, which is bringing all uh, 70 different denominations together. So, I mean, in the SBC world, that's, that's parting the sea right there. And, uh, yeah. So... Thank you, guys. It, it's, not, it's not a dark day ahead of us. It's a different day. And, and it's not probably a day that the generation um, before you is going to appreciate or understand. But it's a day that you guys have. And, uh, and you can complain about it and listen to the, the negative voices. Or you can say, this opportunity that secularity has brought to us right now is the perfect opportunity for the gospel to run like it was intended. It wasn't intended to ever form a religion, a dominant religion, any kind of religion. It was intent, intended to bring 
disconnected people from their father to their father. And, uh, and we're in that day. So can I pray with you?